Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today is Memorial Day in the United States, a day which is a national holiday dedicated to remembering all of those who have given their lives in America's wars around the world. And it's with this in mind we reflect on the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and we ask why is it that these conflicts became the longest ever in American history? The conventional wisdom suggests that the distancing of war from the American people and the rise of robotic unmanned drones reduced the apparent burden of war so much that they allowed these conflicts to roll on, to continue almost unnoticed by the American public for years. Yet is this just one side of the coin, just one reason why wars have become less public, less accountable? I'm your host James Rogers, this is the Warfare Podcast, and to tell us the full story of America's longest wars, we have Professor Sarah Kreps on the podcast. Sarah is director of the Cornell Tech Policy Lab and the author of a new book, Taxing Wars. Sarah chronicles the entire history of how America has paid for its wars and how its methods have changed, making war taxes less obvious, less direct, and arguably less noticeable and accountable to the American people. So the question becomes, is this just about drones, remote warfare and distancing wars? Or is it also the fact that when the costs of war are secret, wars can continue on largely unchallenged? Hi Sarah, welcome to the Warfare Podcast. It's great to be here in person, in your office at Cornell. We've got books ranging from Paul Kennedy's The Rise and Fall of Great Powers, through to Kissinger, and then your own books on drone warfare, and the book we're going to be talking about today, which is your new book, on taxing wars. We're also here on campus while the sun is out in full force. And if you can hear, listening at home, the bongo drums in the background, it's because this is the first day of the spring term. Is that right, Sarah? It's the first day where it feels like spring. Okay, all right, the first time the sun's out. And so people have got spring fever. That's right. All right, that makes sense. I remember, just about remember those days, being back on campus, able to sit outside again. I went to university in the north of the UK, you see. So the sun doesn't come out very often. Mm -hmm. Beautiful place. Students ran the entire campus 
A bit like here, right? Mm, absolutely. There's what, 40,000 students here or something? Yeah, I think about 30,000. 30,000? 15,000 undergrad, 15,000 graduate students. So they run the town. It's a company town. It's a company mm-hmm. town. Oh, good stuff. Well, I look forward to seeing that a bit later. But now we need to get in to talking about your new book because we know each other's work from working on drone warfare, right? And we talk about this all the time. But today we're talking about a topic that... I'd say is often neglected, wrongly so, when it comes to talking about war. And that's how wars are paid for. So take us back long into American history. How were wars traditionally paid for in the United States? So I would love to take you back to the reason why I took interest in this. So one of the books that I found really compelling in graduate school was called Democracies at War, Writer and Stam. And this was a 2002 book. So it was prior to the Iraq War. And if we remember the 90s where it looked like democracy was on the rise, we had a number of countries that were democratizing. And it followed from that, I think, this belief that democracies were better at fighting wars because they selected into smarter wars. And once they were in these wars, they fought harder, their militaries were more professionalized. And so the thesis hinged on this idea that because in a democracy, the costs are passed along to the public in blood and treasure, the public would feel those costs And when the benefit of the war was no longer worth the cost, they would put bottom-up pressure on leaders to end the war. And so I had worked on drones, Uh and as I read this through the context of blood and treasure, it seemed that these were really two sides of the same coin, that drones offer a way to insulate the public from the cost of war because people aren't coming home in body bags. And then on the treasure side, if we're no longer paying for wars in the form of war taxes, which are a very direct way that we see a financial impact, that the public would be insulated from the costs and treasure as well. So this is another manifestation of warfare at a distance, of making warfare as remote as possible from the voting democracies. Absolutely. And so that does then, in a roundabout way, get to your question, which is, I think that the book was right that for many, many decades, if not centuries, this is how democracies paid for wars. They would pass the costs of war along to the public because we had war taxes. And because you wanted the public to feel the cost of the war, like literally feel the cost of war, to have that war tax... That's right. And so when you go back to the history of the United States, when we think of, I don't know, Britain in the Second World War or the First World War, people would buy war bonds or towns would do fundraisers and raise money to buy that one tank or to put money towards a ship that was then named after the town. Communities are tied into that war-making and war-funding dynamic because it's a whole national endeavour. Was that the same in the US? That was completely the same in the U.S. And I think what also probably was the case is that, well, this is more U.S. constitutional history, but the U.S. did not have legal constitutional authority to have income tax until 1913. So the U.S. had financed its wars through war taxes, but through bonds like you're talking about, liberty bonds, but also through excise taxes on individual goods. And so as the U.S. started fighting bigger wars, that was no longer very efficient. Uh And I think also with Keynes in World War II, the question was how to 
finance a war in both efficient and equitable ways. And his point was that you didn't want to pass along the cost of the war to your grandchildren because it's today's society that is feeling both the cost and the benefit. His point was there must be more equitable ways to finance it. So we didn't want to do it in regressive ways, Mm -hmm. which some of these kind of a gas tax would be is very regressive but through progressive taxation. And so in the US, we had these taxes, you know, 95% marginal tax rates during mm-hmm. World War One and Two, And so you uh, really had a case too, where the skin of the rich was really in the game. And so they're also then invested in the outcome of the war and to ensure that the resources that they're committing to the war are going towards something that is not frivolous. And so the costs of the wars waged by that generation are paid for out of the direct pockets of that generation. And there's another implication there as well. Because if you know you're paying for the war, then you don't want your politicians to go into war lightly. This is going to leave you with less money to feed your family, less money to invest in your own life, probably less freedoms as well. And let's add to the fact you're going to have to send your best, your brightest, usually your youngest, off to fight in those wars. So there's that direct human link, that national, that citizen link to the wars that are waged. Did politicians twig that this perhaps could be counterproductive at some point because you then are held accountable to your publics by waging the wars in this way. And so do they start to think, oh, maybe if we start to disconnect the public from the wars that are being fought, then we don't have that level of democratic accountability. We're not held to count the same level for the wars that we're waging because our publics perhaps don't have to pay for this in such a direct way manner. Does it start to change? It changes in the Korean War and then especially in the Vietnam War. So So what happened in the Korean War was that that President Truman came in in this very kind of fiscally sound way, Mm -hmm. which is we're going to pay as we go for these wars. Mm -hmm. So he pushes for taxes on three different occasions. And then on the third, he's rebuffed. And then in 1952, he's running for office. He's now tainted with the label high tax Harry. Okay. And he can't get reelected. So now fast forward to the 1960s with Johnson. And Johnson is trying to gradually escalate in the Vietnam War, Mm -hmm. kind of below the radar. So this is also tying into more covert wars. So this is about trying to keep wars off the public radar. Right. So these are all different ways of doing that. So we're going to not be declaring war anymore. Last time we did that in the U.S. was World War II. We have a police action with the Korean War. Yeah. UN-sanctioned police action. It was UN-sanctioned. True. And then the Vietnam War is really kind of almost a salami tactic. We're going to gradually escalate so we don't have to have domestic debate about this. And both on the troop side, mm-hmm. you need, once you've introduced major troop increases, then it's going to get the attention of the public and therefore Congress in our case. But then also with the way that these wars were going to be financed. So in the Vietnam War, Johnson's advisors, because we were in a period of inflation, suggested tax measures to tamp down inflation and pay for the war. And he resisted year after year. Finally, in 1968, he acquiesces and there's a Vietnam War tax. 
which is the last one of these ever because it, again, he didn't run for re-election. And there were a lot of confounding factors, but it certainly was the case that this tax for the Vietnam War, Mm -hmm. an unpopular war, was a lightning rod for public opposition. Because you can hide the finances for so long, but you can't hide the body bags. And so even at some point, this war becomes incredibly unpopular because you can't hide the fact there's conscription. You can't hide the fact young men are being sent to fight abroad. But then with Johnson not needing to rerun for election, he can just pop the tax in and it doesn't matter how unpopular he is. But the lessons from that are learned that this will never happen again if you want to be a popular politician. Right. And it was very clear in 1966 when an initial tax measure was introduced, he pushes back saying, I don't want there to be debate about the war because my great society project will be vulnerable if we start to talk about the larger enterprise or you know, the war itself. Hi there. I'm Kate Lister, sex historian and author, and I am the host of Betwixt the Sheets, The History of Sex, Scandal and Society, a new podcast from History Hit. Join me as I root around the topics which have been skipped over in your school history lessons. Everything from the history of swearing to pubic hair, satanic panic, cults, there is nothing off limits. We'll be bed-hopping around different time periods, from ancient civilizations to the Middle Ages to Renaissance and early modern right up to now. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So how is the war paid for? Is this by increasing national debt that is then handed on to the next generation? Right. So this is the Keynes argument about intergenerational equity, which is now then you add to the debt and the current public or 
polity doesn't pay for that. It's the next generation. And the next generation can't be accountable to wars that were fought decades earlier. No, and the politicians are long gone. Long gone. Mm -hmm. So this makes perfect sense. It it makes perfect sense logically in my head, if not in terms of your morals and ethics. It might not make sense in terms of the kind of politician you want to be and the kind of society you want to be part of. But for the economic historians that are listening, this goes back to Keynes. But does it go also back to people like Adam Smith? I was going to say, let's not forget Adam Smith. Because I was looking a little bit into this, and I'm not sure if it's a quote, but it's definitely taken from Smith's writings which is he observes that the true costs of war remain hidden from the taxpayer because they are sheltered in the metropole far from the fighting. And instead of increasing taxes, the government pays for the war by increasing national debt. That was 1776. Mm-hmm. Was that the sort of thing that was informing? Was it these earlier writings? Are these lessons that were being learned by the politicians and the economists trying to make this as balancing the books as possible to go forwards? Were they drawing on Smith and Keynes to make these decisions? I don't know if explicitly. Okay. In the case of Keynes, yes. Okay. I don't think I saw, when I was writing this book, any evidence that Alexander Hamilton was invoking Adam Smith explicitly. But what we do know is that Hamilton was very much a supporter of fiscal soundness. So the Revolutionary War, and I kind of hesitate to bring that up. You can say, well, you know, we're, we're, <laughs> we're over it. Um, we had a lot of wars going on. I think it means more to America than it does to the Brits. But, you know, we can talk about it. Okay. <laughs> I'll try to be uh, to to walk gingerly. So the U.S. had not paid for that war as it went because there was no institutional infrastructure in place. Yeah. That's actually one of the really interesting stories about the fiscal state, which is that there's a relationship between taxes and the institution of the state because once you introduce taxes, you need to have the infrastructure in place to collect them Mm -hmm. and process them and see who's not paying taxes. So they go hand in hand. So Hamilton wanted a strong central government. He wanted a strong central bank. And so the taxes were kind of part and parcel of that as a way to pay for the war that was already fought and to strengthen the central government and the central bank. So in the 1790s then, Maybe you've heard of the Whiskey Rebellion. So they introduced whiskey tax to pay kind of ex post for the Revolutionary War costs. And the rebellion part, I think, should be self-evident, which is that all the farmers in Pennsylvania that were producing wheat, rye, goes into this, they were feeling those costs. And this is exactly what Smith would expect, which is there's a directness to that now. But what, you know, and we haven't talked about Immanuel Kant, who talked in 1795 about the perpetual peace and why democracies were more peaceful. So then this is part of that argument, which is, look, the public will face those costs. They're going to say we either think this war is valuable or we think it's not vis-a-vis the costs we're paying into it. And then you kind of get this output of either pressure on the government or willingness to continue fighting the war if you think that the costs you're paying into are being offset by the benefits. You could boycott a tax, couldn't you? I have a, a little flash of a memory in my mind. Henry David Theroux 
did he not opt out of certain taxes that were going towards America's wars on principle? And then I jumped to, I think, even my parents in kind of the 1970s and 80s trying to opt out of paying parts of their energy bill that were based on nuclear power because you don't want to be part of a system that invests in nuclear power. So is this something we've seen as wars are waged, people then having that option, perhaps not legally so, Mm -hmm. but to then remove themselves from that tax out of protest? Right. And this is, again, I think the element, it comes back to what you had said about the antithesis of remoteness, which is the directness, which people are coming into contact, but also that explicit connection. And Adam Smith talked about this. Debt is kind of indirect and nebulous. You don't know how much of that was the war versus the social programs versus all these other things. Whereas if you have the nuclear tax or the stamp tax or the, you know, it is specifically labeled and you know that that's going to finance a war. That makes perfect sense. So is this still the case in the United States today? Is it the case that you don't have these direct taxes anymore and instead the wars that are waged, of which there have been many over the last 20 years or so, these debts of war are passed on to the next generation through national debt? Absolutely. And how does that tie into the dynamics of modern warfare? What does this mean in terms of, well, I suppose I just think of Afghanistan, America's longest war. Was it allowed to become America's longest war because you had the public taken out of the loop of paying for the war? And so the costs of the war are not on the public consciousness Mm -hmm. as much as they would be if you had that Afghanistan tax. Right. So I think that what I really wrestled with as I researched and wrote the book was the potential circularity of this logic. Okay. So it's a question of, why do leaders stop wanting to expose the public to the cost of war? So, you know, I kept wanting to kind of go further upstream to figure that out. And what I identified was an inflection point at the end of World War II. I think this has to do with nuclear weapons. Okay. Where you have now, a no longer do you have major existential wars, at least kind of in the West. And those are wars that were pretty easy to get behind. I mean, who was going to oppose Adolf Hitler? Yeah. Well, a few people in the United States did to start with, but Churchill managed to convince people. Not not just the US, very true. There were also a few in Britain as well. (laughs) But you're right, when it comes to that existential threat to democracy and to everything that is seen as good and right, the war is pretty easy to sell. Right, exactly. And so that's where you can levy these 95% marginal tax rates and people are kind of okay with it. What was interesting, and I went to the Roosevelt Library in Hyde Park, New York, and you go to these binders. I'm sure you've been to many archives. Yes, yes, yes. The binders of letters. Best place to be. That's that smell of going through all the letters, touching bits of history. You get to touch papers that are signed by Roosevelt himself or some president. That's pretty cool. It's really cool, but it's also really cool to see this average librarian in Illinois who writes and says that she's really feeling the pain of these taxes or some labor union that is really feeling the taxes. And you think this is 1943 at the height of the war, a war that we think is completely just. And there's that connection. People are thinking about it. That's really interesting because as we're in our current time at the moment, we might not be feeling directly the costs of 
funding the war in Ukraine in terms of supplying weapons and arms to the Ukrainian military. But it is being felt in other quite overt ways, especially in Europe. And we were talking about this the other day, right? This was the idea that as we cut off supplies of Russian oil and gas and grain from Ukraine and Russia, which is you know 12% of the world's calories, you start to see this ripple effect that affects people's daily lives. You've seen heating costs in the UK. Uh, this is fuel poverty jumping up and increasing as the cost of heating your home increases by 50% in a period of six months or so. But then I wonder, that's just one aspect of one war. We tie in Brexit with that. We tie in a downturn in global economics. But then do we and should we also tie in that next generational handover of the war on terror? So I think this is the part of democratic institutions that did not feature in Immanuel Kant and Ryder and Stam, which is that democracy is almost by definition myopic. So leaders are trying to get reelected. In the US, we have elections every two years. And I think that that just creates a lot of incentives to shift and punt to the next person. I mean, in some ways, it's surprising that the U.S. got out of Afghanistan because this is, I think, exactly what happened is no one wanted to be the one to lose Afghanistan. And I mean, we look at Biden and in a lot of ways, kind of the way he withdrew the U.S. from Afghanistan was really messy. And maybe that was going to happen to anyone. But I think that there are a lot of accounts that suggest that that was kind of a the beginning of this unraveling of his credibility, a very kind of manifestation of a credibility gap and competence gap when it comes to Biden. That's probably a story for another time, but... We'll do a whole other episode on that. <laughs> After the election, maybe. Right. Yeah. Postmortem. But I do have this, you know, the, coming back to Afghanistan, I think it's interesting. Why do we fight these low-intensity wars? We don't fight major wars again. We just don't fight that kind of war. And so the problem, I think, is that these are wars that are inherently... You know, I looked at this a lot for the Afghanistan war. So you have these generals who are saying our major markers of success will be when we can get the process of getting a driver's license in Afghanistan down to 31 steps. And, you yeah. know, Americans are looking at that like, well, you know, what's the connection between 31 steps to get a driver's license and what I'm feeding my kids, you know, at the dinner table or inflation or the economy? And so, again, there's sort of this pernicious cycle, which is, and then, well, I just want to, in defense of the steps to get a driver's license, each one of those steps is a step where corruption can take place. I see. And that's a marker of how these institutions in Afghanistan are maturing. But for the public, that's just not going to resonate. No. So people who had endorsed a war tax to pay for the Afghanistan surge were kind of laughed out of the room. Because Americans were never going to. So the argument was, hey, Americans are just spectating. So give them skin in the game. But again, it's this sort of circularity is they're not going to want to have skin in that game. And it's risky to then bring them into that point of the war because <laughs> yeah. then you enliven public debate. Whereas if you keep the policy you have, you mute public opposition. That's right. So what does this mean for the future? of American wars. Are we likely to see these wars of choice, wars at distance, wars that drag on in the distance in a remote way without us really paying attention to where America is deploying force around the world? I mean, I think, and you work on drones, I think, again, these are operating in tandem. No one wants to have 
troops killed in battle. And I think we're just not going to be fighting large-scale wars that require fiscal sacrifice. So the only mitigation to that, possibly, is that the U.S. and its allies have learned a lot from the last 20 years, and it will take, I think it will be a pretty high bar to get into the next war, but I could be proven wrong. (laughs) We'll hold you to that. (laughs) So tell us, what's the name of the book, and where can we buy it? It is Taxing Wars, the American Way of War Finance, and the Decline of Democracy. Perfect. Available in all good bookstores. Sarah, thank you so much for your time. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff: shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.